This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for April 16, 2023. The title of the message is Saved to Serve. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles, uh, we begin um, the third pastoral epistle uh, by Paul. We turn to Titus chapter 1. We've gone through First and Second Timothy, and we come now to Paul's letter to Titus. Here now the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the, before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And thus is the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it this evening. Uh, one of the, when I first um, came into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I received uh, this really this uh, kind of small book in the mail from the OPC. And it was a church planting manual from the Committee on Home Missions and Church Extension. You know, the, it's, the, it's the committee, the national de- denominational committee in charge of, of overseeing church planting and kind of church growth. And it was a, a very practical how-to book on planting a church, and particularly an OPC church. There are certain ways in which our church functions, the, the, a Presbyterian way, a biblical and confessional way in which we plant our churches uh, in an orderly way. And, and uh, so this book is, is uh, um, written specifically uh, for the OPC uh, in planting OPC churches. And so it had a lot of very specific and practical insights into things like gathering a core group, um, uh, the uh, the various things that, that gospel churches in the Reformed tradition ought to do, um, how to pastor a church, how to gather a core group, how to uh, uh, help them grow to where they will become the core group of a particular church, you know, in their giving, in their growth, in their zeal, uh, in their uh, participation, and in their attendance. And so it's a very helpful uh, manual for not just planting churches, but for churches in general. And tonight, we continue in our series through Paul's pastoral letters, and we come to Titus. And dare I say, um, Paul's letter to Titus is an apostolic manual for planting churches, an apostolic uh, uh, practical how-to, theologically and practically, how to uh, establish and grow uh, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so we begin then 
uh, here with Paul's letter to Titus, one of the members of his apostolic missionary team. And, and, uh, and I'll probably go, come in, go into uh, uh, when uh, Paul wrote this, but you know, somewhere in the mid-60s, uh, between his first and second journey, and you remember um, Paul, uh, Titus accompanied Paul, and, uh, and here we're going to see later on that Paul uh, uh, writes to Titus so that he can go and, and minister to the church in Crete. He had, he had pastored, um, just like he sent Timothy to other churches that he had established, he sent Titus to Corinth, and he did a pretty good job from, from what we see, uh, good enough to where Paul wanted him to go then to Crete. And that's where we find ourselves here in Titus. And so I want to... Um, I want us to look at this introductory section here, this greeting. This is probably the, the, the longest and, and maybe mo- most theological of Paul's greeting um, in the pastoral letters and, and maybe even all his letters. Um, before he even addresses Titus, he, he has this whole little introduction into who he is and, and, and what, what his role is and, and, uh, and what his ministry is all about. And so uh, here in the opening verses, I want us to look at the apostolic character of gospel ministry in church life. Um, And this is just from Paul's perspective as an apostle. And so what is then the character of a New Testament church that Paul introduces here in these verses? Um, the first character then is that it's an apostolic ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, as he does in every letter, Paul introduces himself and he says, he says who he is and what he does. And the first and foremost of this apostolic character is that he is a servant of God. Uh, and this takes us back to when he, fir- he was first called to be a servant of God, right? If you remember in Acts, Acts chapter 7, Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous. He had a, uh, had a zeal not according to knowledge. He was zealous, but he didn't follow the Lord uh, by his grace. He followed the Lord, or he thought he followed the Lord according to the law. Uh, and, um, and he was the one who watched over all the garments uh, that was laid out so that then they could throw stones at Stephen unhindered. And Paul approved all of that. Uh, He was a persecutor of the church. And on the road to Damascus, you remember, he was going to persecute the Christians there. And on that road to Damascus, uh, who interrupted his plans other than the risen Christ who blinded him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, and, And from then on, he called Paul not only to himself, uh, through the gospel, where he went from an enemy to a beloved friend and son of God, but to become a servant of God, to serve him. And that's, that is really at the core of who we are as Christians. We are servants of God. And the word that Paul uses here in particular is, uh, it's translated here servant, but it can also be translated, and it's probably better translated as slave or bondservant. And that what that connotes or what that means is that 
Paul is under the lordship and the authority of God uh, for whom he serves. Um, And so it's not a job. It's not something where he can give God input as to where he would go. But whatever whatever God says to go, he goes. However he does his ministry, he does. Uh, and, and that's how we all ought to live as servants of God. Um, and so Paul, this is, this is how Paul sees himself as a servant, as a servant of God, as a slave of God, under the lordship of God. And then he also describes himself uh, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which characterizes his ministry in all the rest of and, and ministry throughout the ages as an apostolic ministry. Now, I'm not saying that uh, we still have apostles and prophets today, but during this time, God is laying a foundation for the church for all the rest of the ages, up including our own, on the on the foundation of apostolic tradition set down in Scripture. And, and that's why we uh, read God's word, because it is, it is the, the inscripturated apostolic tradition passed down to us uh, as the way in which we ought to live uh, and minister as the people and as a church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says this in, in another passage. He says, the church is the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not only is it apostolic tradition inscripturated, but an apostolic mission executed. It is that mission that God gave, that Jesus gave, uh, in Matthew 28, as he was on the mount right, ascending up into heaven, he says, "Go, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go into all the world, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the apostolic mission, the apostolic great commission through Jesus Christ, executed through the apostles. And that's what Paul is doing here as an apostle uh, writing this letter. It, it, is a, it is part and parcel, the whole, it is part of the whole framework of what Paul is doing in planting churches, in starting them, and then moving on to where the gospel hasn't pre- been preached, and then putting in a pastor. Uh, and Titus is one of those pastors who uh, works alongside. Paul, to establish what has been started, to grow what has been planted, and then later on then to go uh, and multiply that um, through church planting uh, uh, as time goes on. What What this means then for us today is that what Paul started and established so long ago, uh, which this letter attests to, we also ought to participate in and see as our own mission to go into all the world and make disciples. Not only here for those who haven't heard or those who don't know the gospel, uh, but to people groups who've never heard. That's why 
We, si we send missionaries to Eastern Europe, to Africa, to Asia, and we even prayed today with our, uh, a missionary to China who, who's been kind of um, uh, held back from returning. Uh, some of our missionaries have been kind of been kicked out effectively. They are, their visas have not been renewed. Uh, we have missionaries uh, among a people group where nobody's, you know, sent long-term missionaries in a long time in Karamoja. So, so we must continue the apostolic mission to go into all the world uh, as a local church as well, right? I mean, going into uh, all the nations didn't just end when there were no apostles, no more apostles. That the apostolic mission continues. Um, and then he is a, a servant and apostle. Why? Why is Paul a servant and apostle? Look at what he says in verse, uh, in this uh, last part of verse, uh, the middle of verse one. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, right? And this means then that, that uh, he is ministering to a redeemed community, a people chosen and elect saved by grace through faith before the foundation of the world, right? He knows his mission and the purpose for which God called him to serve, and it is to bring the elect to faith and, and establish them in the faith for generations and generations to come, uh, even after him. And so this not only grounds the mission of the church, but anchors their eternal security in the gospel. I think we take for granted, you know, the various ways in which um, the doctrine of election, you know, ought to serve in the life of our church. One is, one is that sal salvation is indeed by grace through faith. It's not of, not by anything that you do, but it's solely of God's choosing. So God chose us before we chose him. Uh, everything God did, he did uh, for the sake of the elect, so that before the foundation of the world, he decreed uh, those whom would be saved, and then he decreed everything that would come to pass, and he ordered his providence in such a way that we would then come to hear the gospel, we would be born again, we would repent, believe, and be saved. And it's all grounded in God's election of sinners to be saved. And what that means then is for our assurance is that our salvation doesn't depend on whether we choose God or not. But it wholly depends and is guaranteed by whether God has chosen us. And if God has chosen us, who is he to change his mind? Right? Who is he to lose that which he has chosen to be his? Right? When Jesus was in, uh, praying uh, in the... In the um, his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, all that you have given to me, I have not lost even one except the son of perdition, referring to, to, um, to uh, Judas Iscariot. So what that means then for you is, you know, your salvation doesn't depend on your performance, on your choice, on your zeal, uh, on the quality or the quantity of your faith. Although, you know, those, those speak to your health, but not to your ultimate salvation. 
And so you can rest assured that because God chose you, that he who began that work will bring it to completion. It is guaranteed. And so you can sleep at night. You can rest your head on the pillow knowing that you belong to God and no one can snatch you from his hand. Uh, and, and, and that is, brothers and sisters, uh, one of the most important aspects of the doctrine of election. It's not to be prideful and to brag, right, that, that uh, you're, you're, you're not chosen because you haven't believed, right? But I am because I'm a Christian. No, it's meant to humble us to the core so that we know that God saves us by grace, not we ourselves, by our choice. Uh, <clears throat> and so, um, so he does it. So Paul does all these things for the sake of, of our faith, for the faith of the elect. He's written all these letters. He's written all these pastoral uh, letters to Titus, uh, specifically here this evening, for our benefit. Isn't that an amazing thing that he writes? He, he wrote all these letters so that we would, we would come to faith, we would grow in faith, and we would continue in faith. I mean, uh, 2,000 years later, uh, he's still working for the faith of the elect. Um, and what that means then, what that means then for you and for me is we ought to live, we ought to hear the word of God, we ought to hear the gospel, participate in the life of the church, uh, sit under the ministry of the, the gospel in the church for the sake of our faith. Do you see that? Not, not for the sake of our social life, for our emotional health, although those are byproducts, right? But for the sake of our faith, the faith of God's elect of whom we are included, praise the Lord. And so, um, so every study, every prayer meeting, every fellowship meal, every um, Sunday school, every worship service, every opportunity to hear the preaching of God's word, you know, um, uh, <laughs> maybe for a lack of a better word, you know, see the purpose for which you do all these things for the sake of your faith. That it would grow, it would deepen, it would bear fruit. Uh, not so that you would grow in intellectual knowledge, right? Not so that you'd have all this, uh, you would have more Christian information and then you, would, you can play, pay, play Bible trivia and win. But so that your faith would be strengthened and even when the difficult times come, the crucible of suffering uh, and persecution in this life, your faith would be, would be um, shown to be pure. Uh, it would be refined, uh, even more pure than gold, even, even a pure gold. And, um, and your trust in the Lord would be more and more resolute. Um, and then, um, not only that, what we're going to see is uh, we are also redeemed in the knowledge of the truth uh, in God's word 
to live a life of godliness. Look at what he goes on to say at the, at the, uh, at the end of verse 1. And their knowledge, not only for the sake of God's elect, but also for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Do you see that? And, um, and again, just going back to that idea that, um, you know, Paul is not talking about an intellectual knowledge of the truth, of Bible facts and information, but a, a living covenant, covenantal knowledge of the truth of the gospel and the proof that you know what you're supposed to know in the right way for the right purpose is that when you live a life of godliness. See, knowledge of the truth is not for information, but for transformation. If you are not growing in godliness as you know, as you grow in your knowledge of the truth, you don't really know the truth. Do you see? True knowledge of the truth of God's grace and his word and the gospel uh, by its very definition means that you will grow in godliness. That you will be more godly as a result of knowing these truths than you were the day before or even the year before or even the, the decade before. You will grow in godliness uh, to more tomorrow as you know more of the truth. But if you don't, then I would dare say you don't really know the truth that you, the way that you're supposed to. And again, I think, you know, I hope I'm not harping on this, but this is a pitfall, I think, of, of us who, who take doctrine uh, and orthodoxy and purity of truth uh, seriously. Is that sometimes we uh, care more about being right than about being transformed by the truths. To learning uh, information rather than learning it for transformation that the doctrines that we learn, that every sermon, every Bible study, every truth that we, we, we receive, you know, we ought to work it out. Again, like just going back to this morning's sermon, it's like a gold mine. The gold is already there. We just need to dig it out. Uh, and, and that happens when we open God's word. And it ought to lead to godliness. Uh, I'm not, I don't know exactly what that would look like every time, but whatever it is you, whatever truth that you've taken, you know, let it be kind of like, um, let it be like a truffle, you know, when, when people, uh, you know, when, uh, when you see like, you know, uh, dogs or, 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 or uh, pigs smelling in the dirt for truffles. I mean, truffles uh, being worth more than gold. When they find it, uh, you, you, you eat it, <laughs> uh, you know, or when you have gold, you find it and you make it yours that you would grow in godliness. That's the picture that Paul is painting here. The knowledge of the truth in accord, that accords with godliness. And then, and then the hope of eternal life. We're, we are redeemed in the hope of eternal life. The gospel calls us not only to trust in Christ, but to hope in him. It's a hope fixed on the certainty of eternal life, a hope that frees us from the fear of death, a hope that allows us to grieve not as those without the hope of resurrection, but as those with the hope of resurrection uh, and eternal life. Why? Here's a question. Because Jesus died and rose uh, again. This is why we celebrated Easter last week. That because he died and rose again, 
we will die and rose again. And the certainty of that truth is the hope by which we live. Right? So, so if God is for us and he is going to raise us from the dead, then what can anyone do to me? Uh, that's, this, is, this is, brothers and sisters, this is the, the confidence that so many people in persecuted countries have that we will never know is that they trust in the Lord and have such a hope of eternal life that they have the boldness to stand up and preach the gospel, to share the gospel, even at the pain of death and torture. And even though they die, they, they, can, they do it willingly and, and joyfully because they know that even if they die, God will raise them from the dead. Death does not have the last word. That the hope of resurrection is so sure they can take it to the bank. There's no question. And that's how, that's the kind of hope that I hope you will all have. That you will have such a hope of eternal life that you will not fear death. That you would have such a hope of eternal life that when you know someone who's died in the Lord, that hope will, that hope will temper your grief. That death is not the end for our loved ones who are in Christ, but it is the doorway for them to be with the Lord and we will be with them again. Because when Jesus returns, he will take us to himself and together we will be with the Lord forever. And so we ought to encourage each other with those words. That's why Paul preaches the gospel of the resurrection. Because it's our hope. Um, and for those of us, and I, let me just um, just uh, say this and then move on, is, you know, as the older we get, you know, there are parts of our bodies that hurt that we didn't think would hurt. Our, 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 our joints, our backs, our necks. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, you wake up and you hear this big crack and it just hurts. And I'm very thankful, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus returns and we're raised from the dead, we will have new and glorious bodies that will not hurt anymore. And so I don't have to lose, uh, I don't have to be anxious about my health, although, you know, we can be concerned, no doubt, but we don't have to ultimately be anxious about uh, anything. Because the hope of eternal life is ours already, and no one can take it away. Um, and then uh, let's move on. Uh, because uh, we um, know the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Uh, we can be confident as well because God never lies. Look at verse two there, at the end of verse two, that God never lies and that the word that he gives to us has been promised before the ages began. Again, you know, again, here's just another source of assurance for us is that if God never lies and he's promised us all of these things, how does it and how might it change the way that we live? If you have eternal life, how does that change the fears that you have? If you have been promised uh, 
an infinite eternal treasure beyond all imagination, right? That your treasure, you are heirs and co-heirs of God with Christ in heaven, and that you are rich beyond all measure. How will that change your relationship with money, with your possessions, with what you have or don't have, right? If God never lies and he says, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness, when you suffer, how will that impact the way that you see your suffering, the way that you endure that suffering? Will it undo you? Or will you trust in God's promises that it's only for a time and that the weight of glory is, is, isn't to be, is nothing to be compared with the, with the weight of glory that is to come? So you see then your sufferings in, in, the, in that light and you see, yeah, it hurts, it's hard, it's difficult. But in the light of eternity and of God's glory, it's small. And I don't mean to minimize the, the suffering that we all go through, that you may go through. But, but the Lord promises, and he doesn't lie, that the glory that is awaiting you through that suffering is, is, going, to keep, is going to help you persevere through it all. Now, you need not lose heart. That um, one day God will, death will be no more and God will wipe away every tear from your eye. So the, the veil of tears is only for a while. But um, we have that God, the God who never lies and he promises to wipe them away. So, um, so we can trust in God's word. And then... Then we are. We also see that Paul uh, is a servant and apostle at the proper time, manifested in his word as he preaches the gospel. And what that means then is that we are also a gospel preaching church, um, entrusted with the gospel as the center of our lives. Um. And here we have this language at the beginning of verse 3. We have this language of at the proper time manifested in his word. It's the same idea of, of the pregnancy, the fullness, the ripeness of time. Uh, that the word of God came and the gospel was proclaimed. And I think what, what I think Paul is referring to is the manifested at the right time throughout all the ages, beginning in Genesis 3.15, throughout Genesis, all the way to Malachi, and then fully ripening and bearing its fruit in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law and make them sons and daughters of God. Um, and so every time then, every time we preach the gospel, whether it's, you know, in Genesis 3.15 or 2,000 years ago, it is manifested at the right time to preach the gospel. There's never a wrong time to share the gospel with those you love. There's never the wrong time to preach the gospel in any given circumstance. 
And so that's what Paul is, is telling us, that the gospel, the preaching of it, the teaching of it, the living out of it uh, is, is at the center of the life of his ministry and of our church. Uh, and then let me, let me close here. Uh, because of all of these things, um, because of all of these things that I've, we've uh, looked at, we are then a household and a family of God. And Paul says here, to Timothy, what does he say? To Timothy, uh, my true child in the common faith, uh, that grace, peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior, that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, um, that we're family uh, in Christ, and we're family not only because of Christ, but we're family uh, in the common faith uh, in Christ. And so in that way, we ought to encourage one another. We ought to um, help one another, serve one another, and, um, and then just see our, ourselves uh, in that light as a church. And, um, and we're going to see what, more and more what that means in the coming weeks as we go through Titus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Paul's ministry in this letter. We pray that it would speak to us even today and that uh, we, would, um, we would truly uh, live, uh, Lord, as your church, as your people, uh, as a family in the, in the household of God. Bless us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.